Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. So that led me to this idea that paucity can actually lead to innovation. The Washington Naval Treaty didn't really prevent innovation. They actually serendipitously aided innovation. So a paucity of resources can actually lead to a more innovative approach. We've got an arms race going on in the world right now that's taking away resources from solving all these other pressing problems. I'd say, hey, we'll freeze our carriers if you freeze yours not build any more new carriers, which means we probably think more honestly, just like we did in the interwar period, about how to battle in the anti-access environment, what to do with these new technologies. Well, you know, I'm a contrarian, you know, people are, they they freak out, you know, because I'm a carrier aviator with, you know, almost 200 arrested landings and almost 3,000 hours in Navy aircraft, you know, and we don't need so many carriers. Blue water capability vis-a-vis the Chinese, like I tell people when they go, oh, look at that Chinese aircraft carrier. I go, okay, when the Chinese aircraft carrier is out there recovering 30 aircraft in under 30 minutes from a Marshall stack, zip-lip, and zip-lip means without communications, then then get a hold of me about Chinese capability. You know, the last time the Chinese kind of threw their weight around with naval power was Yuan Dynasty. I am not completely convinced that the Chinese can produce capability just by producing stuff. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kuhn, who is a professor of military history at the Army Command and General Staff College and a former naval aviator. He's written a number of fascinating books, and we're here today to discuss a pair of them, Agents of Innovation and America's First General Staff. John, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Well, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk a lot about history of interwar Navy organizations and innovation. And I want to kind of like start off here a little bit with discussing the innovation piece. It's not always just what is the technology, but it's also how do the organizations kind of use that technology. So can you start off a little bit by talking about, you know, when you have an innovation, how does it get diffused across the organization? So what we're talking about is patterns of acceptance, patterns of acceptance for new ideas, right? So, but the idea of the patterns of acceptance comes from a guy who was educated and, and kind of brought up in that Ohio State School of Military Innovation, uh, Chris Gable, who's retired now, Dr. Chris Gable, uh, a wonderful, wonderful historian. And the patterns of acceptance can be kind of, they can, you can sort of go with taking a new idea and then what are you going to do with it? You know, it, it is, are you going to build an entire holistic concept around it that includes other innovations? Are you just going to kind of say, well, I'm going to go single shot with this idea? Uh, or are you just going to say, well, you know, it's, it's a cheap, easy thing, and we'll just kind of spread it out and, and throw it all over the place. And that's called ubiquity. So, uh, and I always use the example uh, of the machine gun, you know, uh, where's it going to go? Is it going to go in the infantry? Is it going to go in the artillery? Is it going to go in the cavalry? 
or do you just give it to everybody? And that's sort of the ubiquity approach. And normally the first step for any sort of new way of doing business is it enters an existing way of doing business that's larger and contextual. So machine guns, you know, they sort of get, say, well, here's this new weapon that puts out a lot of firepower. You know, we're just going to slide it in here to the existing organization, the existing tactics and doctrine, and new thing is technology. On the other hand, you know, you might you might do something different. You might say, well, we've had muskets for years and years and years, but what we're going to do is we're going to have countermarch and rolling fire. So that's actually a new tactic or a new doctrine. So so that but it usually gets shoehorned in sort of an existing way of doing business. Sometimes uh, a new idea, particularly technological idea, seems so revolutionary that we like to kind of put it in its own thing. This actually happened to the machine gun, and it would definitely happen with air power. Uh, and that, that is, let's put it in its own little box, its own little organizational box with its own tactics, its own doctrine, and it'll be its own thing, you know, uh, like creating a new branch, right? We're going to create a new branch, the chemical core, you know. So they're going to have their own organizational box with their own doc- doctrine and tactics and everything. And actually, the French did this with the machine gun. They, they had the Mitrieuse machine gun, which was probably the finest machine gun in the world. But they organized these things, and they were secret, and they kept them kind of so it didn't interact with the rest of the French army. Nobody ever practiced with it, rehearsed with it in a larger uh, context. And it was sort of a failure on the battlefield, even though it was a far superior weapon to anything else that was out there in the Franco-Prussian War. Same thing, of course, uh, happens much later with the bomber. You know, We're just going to create bomber pure for we don't need fighters. going to send one type of airplane out there in these pure formations. And, and the concept is so revolutionary, we're going to build the doctrine and the tactics just around this one concept. The holistic approach, which in the military domain we call combined arms, is where you don't use that kind of pure approach, but you do go kind of beyond just sort of shoehorning an idea into an existing model. And uh, the carrier air wing is a good example of sort of the holistic approach, which is hey, what we're going to do is, you know, we're not just going to put bombers on aircraft carriers and we're not just going to put fighters on aircraft carriers. And and initially the idea was we need fighters to protect ships from land-based aircraft, you know, so we need to protect the battle line. So, so, you know, there were sort of the fighter guys and then there were the bomber guys. And the bomber guys, you know, were were, were going to use bombs, but we've already got this other naval weapon called the torpedo. So the Navy spread its bet with the air wing, and it went to the composite air wing right off the back, which was a holistic approach. And this was really adopted by a guy who wasn't even an aviator, William Moffat. He commanded in Mexico, which was a battleship. So the kind of the combined arms approach uh, or the holistic approach really works well. The Germans do this in World War One when they create the uh, storm battalion for combat in the Western Front, you know, with new infiltration tactics built around some new technology, some of it's not so new, but things like uh, lighter machine guns, trench mortars, flamethrowers. Flamethrowers are new, but they don't build the whole concept just around one weapon, and they reorganize, too. They completely reorganize how they fight into much, much, much smaller units with uh, that are equipped with all these different weapons with very, very sophisticated tactics, you know, and some portions of the stormtrooper organization are going to be infiltrators. Some guys are going to be guys that are going to go around and reduce pillboxes so you can enhance mobility for the follow-on forces. And some guys are just going to be maximized in terms of being able to push as far and as fast as they can without having to reduce strong points or anything. And so the Germans basically invent modern tactical warfare with fire and maneuver with the uh, the storm battalion. And, and, and the, usually the poster child for this is this guy named Willie Rohr, who actually comes up with the idea of conducting German defensive tactics and counterattack. 
and and then they build all these things. And Ludendorff actually sees these guys, and and they look like guys from the 18th century. They look like the French engineering sappers for a siege from the 18th century. And he's like, who are these guys? And they explain the concept to him, and he basically says, well, this is our new doctrine. This is our new organization for this particular problem. So that's sort of the holistic approach. So two examples of a holistic approach: a composite carrier air wings and the and the German stormtrooper tactics for World War One. And again, I have to remind your listeners. You know, we're not talking about stormtroopers in the interwar period who are political thugs who go around and beat people up. We're talking about essentially combat engineers and very, very sophisticated combined arms heavy infantry. So that's that's really what we're talking about there. Uh, and the Germans continue this concept all the way through World War II. So you'll see these special engineer sapper stormtroop outfits uh, they, whenever there's a really difficult problem at Tobruk or Stalingrad or Voronezh or someplace like that. You'll see these guys show up and... And, and they'll be sort of the lead elements to solve difficult military problems, often involving fortifications and trenches. I think today actually is the birthday of the new Space Force. I was wondering if, you know, we're going to get to the general board here in the Navy, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the organization of the Space Force? Because it seems like a lot of the argument was for that brigading, right? Take the Space Force out of the Air Force, make it its own thing. It turns out that it's still going to be underneath the Air Force and there's going to be some space acquisition uh, council that will kind of try to integrate around. But do you have any opinions on the Space Force there? Space Force has existed for years and years and years. I mean, ever since uh, since World War II, when we started to develop all these capabilities with respect to, you know, exo-atmospheric stuff, whether it's communication satellites or reconnaissance satellites with sensors on them, and that's been around for a long time, and, and the approach was sort of on a service basis, you know, but it wasn't just services, it was also other agencies of the government. And again, I'm extremely limited on how much I can talk about here because, you know, I had all the clearances when I was in the Navy, so I, I know probably too much about this particular topic. But just speaking from a generalized viewpoint, you, you had essentially three space services already. And then you had the other intelligence agencies that had their pieces of the pie for all of that as well. So it's always been out there, and there have been these different outfits that coordinate and, and, and kind of try to synchronize everything. And it's more of a roles and missions thing. You know, what, what's the role of the mission here? You know, when we think about the Air Force and its piece of the space pie for the last 50 years or so, it, its piece of the pie has really been homeland defense. All right, so using the Space Force primarily, you know, and so we think about Cheyenne now, the NORAD and all that kind of stuff. So that's what we think of. So it is more of a reorganization than anything. It's more of a shoehorning approach uh, with an existing capability, right? It's sort of, it's, it's, instead of instead of shoehorning the foot in, you're kind of shoehorning, you know, pieces of the foot out, you know? So that, that's kind of where you're going with this. It's more of a public relations campaign from my standpoint. Um, and I mean, what are we really talking about? What's the what's the technology that's really involved here? Um, and it's and, you know it's limited by treaty, supposedly, you know. So what what we can and cannot do in space. So central technology that we're talking about, there's really only two. There's 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 uh, there's guided missile rockets, and there's their payloads that we leave out there called satellites. That's space. All right. The technology, from just sort of a generalized viewpoint, is pretty easy to understand. Um, you know, now when you start getting into orbitology and all that kind of stuff, yeah, you, now you're getting pretty complicated here. But that's just mathematical equations that 
you know, make this all possible to begin with anyway. So the technology has been around for a long, long time. It really has since the, for satellites since the 50s and for rockets and Goddard in the V2. So, you know, I don't really, I don't see much that's new, right? You know, maybe if we start going to the moon and having Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke sort of stuff take place or something, you know, may, maybe more Asimov than Clark, right? But, uh, you know, it's just a reorganization. You know, reorganizations can can do a lot of wonderful things, or they can create new bureaucracies, stovepipes, and friction. So, uh, so I'm the jury's out for me. And of course, I'm a historian, so I'll probably be dead before I think it's appropriate to judge the wisdom or, uh, of this or not. You know, as historians, we're we're really reluctant to make judgments about uh, about things until we've got quite quite a bit of evidence, and then more often we'll just make a suggestion than a, than a judgment. So let's get to some of your judgments about the interwar Navy. But first... Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting what was going on there right at the turn of the 20th century. We had the first general staff, which is really the uh, the general board of the Navy, and then the Army followed suit pretty soon thereafter. Can you just describe, you know, what was the environment there at the turn of the 20th century that kind of made the time right for these kinds of uh, structures to arise? Well, you know, it was sort of the perfect storm for uh, for reform and change, innovation, and everything because there was so much new technology. I mean, people today are kind of looking around, going, oh, "Look at all this new technology!" You know, we've got to we've got to come up with all all sorts of new structures and organizations. And that's how it was at the end of the nineteenth century. I mean, there was all this new technology. I mean, you know, the steam engine had been around for a while. Well, not really. It had been around for less than a century. You know. But it was revolutionizing everything, the military, the industrial, uh, finance, all these things were being uh, revolutionized by new technology as a result of harnessing steam power. And now you're starting to get internal combustion engines, you're creating more and more powerful explosives and propellants. Chemistry is going through this gigantic change. Scientists are actually uh, starting to kind of figure out you know, at least at the practical level, you know, how to how to make chemistry and physics and all these things far, far more useful uh, in producing new technology. You've got all these sort of geniuses out there from Tesla to Edison, you know, uh, to Niels Bohr, to to uh, to all these different guys that are out there, the, the Curies that are putting stuff together. So so that so your audience needs to understand contextually the amount of technological change that's taking place is incredible. All you have to do is go to Naval Institute proceedings of the, of the period and read Naval Development. And it's all focused on mechanical and weapons and chemical engineering and all this new stuff that's out there and how we're going to leverage that to you know, make our warships more efficient and effective. Now, the political piece here is the United States is no longer a second-tier power. It's not a first-tier power yet, but it's no longer a second-tier power. And certainly economically and financially, the United States is right up there near the top with Germany and Great Britain and France and Russia as a top tier uh, economical and uh, financial power. That said, of the major powers, including Japan for that matter, the United States is the weakest in terms of military and naval power. And during the Spanish-American War, it becomes you know abundantly obvious to the Americans themselves that you know sort of the American approach to things, which is sort of Yankee ingenuity and militiaism and sort of ad hoc, make it up as you go. It's just not going to work. You're going to have to leverage the modern ideas 
mostly that are coming out of places like Europe, but some of them are coming out of the United States about how to do things. You know, there's this thing called Taylorism, which is this idea that, you know, we managerial expertise and it's scientific. It's not an art, you know, and so so there's all this going on with all these new technologies that are taking place and new technologies that will come after the general board is formed. So during the Spanish-American War, the, the Army didn't have a general staff. They went with their tried-and-true approach, which is the great man theory of warfare. Is we're going to have a, a big, fat general, and he's just going to sort of make it up as he goes. He'll build his own staff, and we'll just kind of do whatever it is and make sure everybody gets their piece of the pie. And and you get this huge mess in Florida and Tampa and, and sort of this disaster that turns out well. But the I, I, the attitude of everybody is, you know, thank God it was the Spanish or we might have lost, right? This is an overseas campaign, both in the Philippines and in, and in the Caribbean. And the Navy has something called the Strategy Board. They've already hidden their general staff inside the Naval War College. So for years and years and years, the Navy has already sort of been working on war plans, thinking about war planning. And they've kind of hidden their general staff inside the Naval War College. So they're training essentially what they consider to be general staff officers. Their model here is the Germans. They're not modeling themselves on anybody else other than the Germans. Henry Taylor, Alfred Thayer Mahan, Luce, all these guys, when, when you read their stuff, they're going, yeah, the Germans, Volka. Those, that's what we need to do. We need to be organized and we need to think that way. Of course, the problem is the Americans have this inherent dislike of militarism and, and sort of the way the Prussia-German school is doing things is very militaristic. It's not the way Americans like to see things done with respect to national security. They don't like having a big army. They don't like spending money for a big navy. They like a big navy, but they don't like to spend money on a big navy. So we've already got a, a proto-general staff hiding inside the Naval War College and also hiding inside the Office of the Secretary of the Navy. Remember, there's no sec staff. So We've got two SEC deaths in 1898. We've got the Secretary of the Navy, who's John D. Long, and we've got, we've got the Secretary of the Army, and I can't remember who that is. And that's who we've got for Secretaries of Defense. And Long has got this outfit called the Office of Naval Intelligence that works for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And so there's also sort of some general staffers sort of inside that. And for years, they've been agitating for an official naval general staff along European lines, you know, or along British lines. The British have these advocacy boards and everything. So eventually, after the war with Spain is over, the Secretary of the Navy finally, John D. Long, finally says, well, you know, that strategy board was kind of a good thing. So maybe what we'll do is we'll create a permanent board as an experiment. We won't call it a general staff. We'll keep it very, very small. We'll make sure, you know, sort of the key players are members of this board, and the key players, according to him, are going to, there is no chief of naval operations. So what he does is he takes the hero of the Spanish-American War, Admiral Dewey, and he makes him president of the general board. People also say, hey, this also prevents Dewey running for political office. He can't be leveraged by either the Republicans or the Democrats to be, to be a Paul. And so Dewey becomes the president of this thing. He gets uh, assisted by essentially senior captains and a couple admirals. And again, in the America's First General Staff, I kind of go through all of that, how it changes, because the board changes over and over again. And it's, what does happen is the board sort of solidifies around the idea of a small group of guys, never more than about a dozen guys, and sometimes barely a dozen guys. But they're all going to be working for Admiral Dewey, and their primary plan is the defense of the coast of the United States. That's sort of their charter. 
And what they do is they get the war planning portfolio. So that portfolio, uh, the what we would call sort of the proponency of war planning goes to the general board, and the general board is going to include a lot of guys who graduated from the Naval War College. Every summer, they'll go up to Newport and work with the students and the faculty of the Naval War College on war plans. And they'll carry all the portfolios for the war plans up there to the Naval War College and work on them. There's principally only two war plans. There's War Plan Black uh, against the Germans, because Dewey thinks the Germans are going to violate the Monroe Doctrine and try to use uh, crises with uh, uh, indebted South American nations like Venezuela and try to get basing rights in the New World, particularly in the Caribbean. And then, of course, the other war plan is War Plan Orange, which isn't really a thing until some political problems with racist American legislation against Japanese immigration and then eventually against Japanese kids in the California schools. So you'll have such scares with Japan, and, and so the uh, Plan Orange portfolio will also be created. But I argue in my book that the, the Plan Orange portfolio is not really a big deal until after World War I, that the War Plan Black portfolio, and Black is an odd plan, I mean, if you've ever read about Black. So that's the general board. It gets created to do that uh, as an experiment. It works. Everybody kind of keeps it around, but it's always sort of got the guillotine over its neck organizationally because of this not a legislated uh, organization that's created by secretarial or executive fiat. The uh, general order 544 is the order that, and so it can go away just as quickly as it was established. So, you know, for the first couple of years of the board, you know, it's just another Navy board that gets created to do something. You know, you might have a bureau chief who's also on the general board. And in the case of the early board, that's going to be the head of the Bureau of Navigation, which is the closest thing the Navy has to an operations department, but it's also the guys that handle all the personnel assignments, so it's a key thing. So he's also on the general board, and the, and the guy that, that, that kind of gets that job under Dewey for the first couple of years of the board is uh, Henry M. Taylor. So Henry Taylor is going to be the guy who's, uh, who's sort of uh, Dewey's right-hand man until about 1915. Yeah, so I wanted to stick with the uh, bureau system there this is acquisition talk after all so you know in the, in the army even though when they created the general staff and the army arsenals kind of became appendages of that general staff they didn't really actually have too much leverage or power over the arsenals to get them to do what they wanted until really world war ii and after that um so can you just describe i, I think that the uh, the bureaus they they're the ones that you know they had bureau of engineering bureau of construction and uh and all that so they did a lot of the actual technology development can you just describe what their role was and how did they interact with the the general board and how did that lead to new uh technologies and structures yeah the bureau system was born out of uh, reformers earlier in the 19th century who uh you know the same guys that finally got the naval academy established and uh again it was the navy saying hey you can't do this ad hoc but the civilians did not want the Navy to, you know, have any sort of peacetime operations bureau. They, the strategy piece was something that would take place during war in concert with, you know, the secretary and whoever the senior admirals and captains were, you know, because the Navy was small enough. So the bureaus were born out of that before, before the Civil War, and then the system got modified. But the bureaus were always sort of, they were sort of Title Ten guys. You know, their job was to man and equip and to a lesser extent train the fleet. But they're, in terms of tactics, doctrine, strategy, 
they had no role to do that, and, and that was specifically created to be that way. So yeah, you can have bureaus, but you you know you're going to have a bureau of personnel. You'll have a bureau of ordnance. You'll have a bureau of construction and repair. You'll have a bureau of yards and docks. You'll have a bureau of navigation. And navigation is the bureau that seems the most likely to be a bureau that could you know evolve into an operations bureau of operations uh, because it has the personnel assignment. There's a bureau of training, and the bureaus themselves change over time. There's a bureau of material. There's a bureau of uh, gosh, there's uh, of equipment. All right, when I go into some of this in my general staff book, not too much in Agents of the Nation, which was my first book, which looked specifically at the interwar period, but the, in the in the general staff book, I, I do that. America's first general staff. So, and the bureaus are the most resistant to the general board. They don't like it. Uh, they're very very powerful. It's only Dewey's immense prestige that kind of brings things under control. But the bureaus push back and they push back and they push back. But it's a, it, over time, the board co-ops the bureaus. And Teddy Roosevelt will finally bring everything matters to a head uh, because the Secretary of the Navy can say, okay, you, you're the head of the Bureau of Ordnance, for example. You know, you get to serve on the general board until I say you don't have to serve on the general board anymore. And so that's one way these guys get co-opted. They just get thrown onto the, the general board. The tail of the general board and the bureaus is the tail of the of the bureaus slowly losing power to the general board over time. That will change when the board gets absolute sort of veto authority over uh, most of the bureau functions with ship design, and that'll take place at the, at the Portsmouth Conference in 1908 when uh, when President Roosevelt meets with the general board up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and with some of the naval reformers. Uh, guys like Sims and guys like that, and they'll make the decision, you know, the general board is going to be the final authority on ship design. And what happens is the general board, which is already sort of thinking about fleet design, not just ship design, becomes de facto what they call the balance wheel of the Navy. And this is the term that they use all the time. And again, if you're not an engineer, you don't understand what that is. But essentially, they're the speed governor for the Navy. They're sort of the final port of resolution. They're more like an umpire than anything else, but their word doesn't become law, but it becomes as about close to the law as you can get. But they're never completely brought under control. They're still sort of these semi-independent potentates, right? Um, you know, the gen but the general board, you know, can tell them what to do. And, you know, by the time we get to, to the interwar period, I mean, the general board will call these guys to appearings and I'll go, okay, we want to design for this. We want to design for that. Get back to us in a month and brief us, you know. So they never lose that function until World War II. Now, what happens in 1915 is the creation of the Chief of Naval Operations. There's, a, there's an insubordinate admiral named Bradley Fisk who's, the, who's under this new system called the AIDS system, which is sort of four aides to the Secretary of the Navy. And for the first time, they create an aid for operations to the Secretary of the Navy, and Fisk is that guy. And he bypasses the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, and the General Board and Admiral Dewey, and gets the uh, legislation passed creating a chief of naval operations to conduct naval operations and do war plans and plan strategies. The guy that gets picked to do this is not Fisk. Fisk is, they basically thumb their nose at Fisk and they go, okay, well, we get to appoint him. And so in, in uh, uh, Josephus Daniels, conversations and consultations with the leaders of the Navy picked uh, a captain who's in charge of a naval yard up in Brooklyn, uh, William Benson, and makes him the chief of naval operations. The first thing Benson does 
when he's, he's the new CNO, he's got very, very little power. Remember, new organizations don't have a lot of power right away, you know. And, and so it's also the, the first, you know, weeks, months of new organization are the most important period for whether those organizations are going to succeed or not. And that's the case for the general board. You know, they lay the foundation for their success very, very early on by not being in your face, by kind of doing things with consensus and agreement. And that's why those become cultural attributes of how to work in the general board. Well, the CNO office is the same way. I mean, Benson is, hardly has a staff at all. You know, basically it's flag lieutenants and maybe two or three other guys. And it's not until later that they actually give him a staff and, and he starts to get, you know, sub-bureaucratic organizations like the War Plans Division. So the first thing that happens to Benson is he goes to the general board. He becomes a de facto member of the general board. So he's actually on the general board before he even establishes his own office. And the CNO will remain a member of the general board all the way to 1933 when these sort of permanent members from other organizations are purged from the general board in, in an effort to kind of make the general board more independent. So, but when that happens, the evolutionary chain begins to change. And so all the bureaucratic growth that's going to occur is going to occur in the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, what I call OPNAV. And we still call it OPNAV today, so it's not me. It's, you know, it's the name I learned from the Navy. And so OPNAV will be the one that will continue to sort of pare back uh, both the Bureau's perks as well as the general board. Uh, and then eventually, Ernest King, as CNO and Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet in World War II, will completely subordinate the Bureau system and absorb them into the Chief of Naval Operations. So I'm really kind of fascinated by organizational evolution and how that takes place, and not into the general board, but uh, which you might think, oh, the Bureaus will actually you know, kind of get absorbed into the general board. They don't. The general board remains small and effective for its entire career. Uh, so what will happen is the bureaus will actually get, you know, gobbled up by the uh, by the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, and they don't exist anymore. They're 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 not now, you know. They're they're the opnav beast. After uh, World War One, there were a series of arms reduction treaties, and you've made some powerful arguments about how the uh, limitations on resources and also some of the attributes of the treaties themselves actually kind of spurred some of naval aviation in the interwar period. Can you uh, discuss how that happened and how the general board facilitated it? Yeah, and again, I owe a lot of this to uh, Chris Gable and the course I took with him that he had actually kind of gone through with Murray, Williamson Murray, uh, Wick Murray at, at Ohio State, which was innovation in the interwar period and i was fascinated by the case of you know sort of the losers who get penalized when they lose a war and then the victors constrain them and in in the constraints almost make it make it imperative that if the loser is going to reemerge as a player or a power uh, they have to innovate organizationally tactically socially politically you know, the first case of this, which I'd already known about for years and years, was the, the Prusso-German Reform Commission with Klauswitz, Scarnhorst, Eisenhower, Boy, and Grohlman. After the French defeat in the Yenna auerstadt eylau campaign in 1806-1807, so, so the, the, the French, due to the Germans, and they'll do it a hundred years later, they'll do the same thing. You know, they limit the Prussian army to, you know, 42,000 guys, they say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And so the Prussians just innovate and reform out the yin-yang. And, you know, in, in 1813, Napoleon thinks he's got 
you know, this little Prussian army that he doesn't have to worry about, that, you know, that even left them 42,000 men because, you know, they've been attrited in the Russian campaign. And all of a sudden, he's got a German army of about 110,000 guys at his doorstep because of these smart guys who innovated in the absence of resources. So I looked at that, and then the same thing happens to the Germans again in Versailles. The Versailles takes away battleships, it takes away carriers, it prevents the Germans from having heavy artillery, it limits the army to 100,000, they're not allowed to have air power, they're not allowed to have tanks. And, and so the Germans, again, will innovate out the yin-yang. They'll go, well, yeah, we're not allowed to have an air, air force, but you know what? We're going to pretend like we have an air force and come up with air power doctrine. And in many ways, the Germans will have a much more holistic, mature approach to air power for the sort of limited wars that a guy named Hans von Seck thinks they're going to fight as the Reichswehr uh, than any other army, uh, with the exception possibly of the Soviet Union, where a lot of innovation is taking place as well. And so that led me to this idea that paucity can actually lead to innovation. And so I took on this shibboleth, this myth, this paradigm that the Washington Naval Treaty that limited the U.S. Navy, the British Navy, the Japanese Navy, the French Navy, the Italian Navy, and the subsequent naval limitation treaties at London in 1930 and again at London in 1936 didn't really prevent innovation. They actually serendipitously aided innovation. Um, and they did it in weird and funny ways so that so a paucity of resources can actually lead to a more innovative approach and not just for carrier air in the inner war but for everything uh i make an argument at the end of agents of innovation that i've always been proud of nobody's really ever kind of said hey you know we really like that argument but it's my favorite argument in the book that that the washington naval tree freezes the lessons learned of the last war uh, williamson murray has famously written that it's not studying the last war that's the problem. You know, everybody always says, well, you studied the last war, that's why you're not doing so well in the current war. And Williamson Murray in Military Innovation in the Interwar Period, later in the book, during one of the, in one of the conclusions chapters, says, yeah, that's not what's going on. If the problem is people don't properly study the last war, or they forget the lessons learned in the last war. <laughs> Afghanistan and Iraq, as we're talking about today. And that's why they don't innovate so well. And what the Washington Naval Treaty is, it freezes those lessons learned. You, guess what? Battleships don't really do much in World War I. They're the coin of naval power. They're extremely dangerous. They've got a lot of firepower. But when it came to World War I, battleships were sort of a canard. Uh, you know, and people after the war are saying they're obsolete. They're not obsolete, but again, their utility, at least in a war like World War I, was very, very limited. You know, you're spending almost as much time trying to protect them, too much time when you're the Royal Navy, instead of protecting merchant ships from German U-boats. So, so you freeze these lessons learned at Washington when you say, well, nobody's allowed to build any more battleships. Battleship building holiday, win-win, right? Um, you know, you save money on building new battleships, and oh, by the way, you're not going to be focused entirely on this one weapons platform. Uh, at the expense of all the others, which I think would have happened without a Washington Treaty. So what happens is, is that the treaty sets limits on capital ships, battleships and battle cruisers, and also applies the same limits to aircraft carriers because of air power. Now, aircraft carriers aren't limited because they're ships, they're limited because they're air. 
And they wanted to ban bombers and submarines at the Washington Naval Conference. I always wonder if they'd done that, you know, how much more we might have uh, really innovated effectively, you know, with, with submarines and with bombers, you know, maybe more more effectively, you know, because the Allies actually innovate somewhat less effectively in, in those terms with respect to somebody like the Germans. But uh, those aren't limited, but the aircraft carriers are limited to the same ratio as the battleships for England or for Great Britain, the United States, and Japan, 553. The problem is the only person that's got their entire allotment of aircraft carriers, which they can scrap and build new ones or keep the old ones, is Great Britain. So Japan and the United States get to build purpose-built aircraft carriers. The British will bet on the come and say, you know what, we're not going to build new carriers. That costs money. We're just going to watch the Americans and the Japanese and see what they do. And then when we think it's time, we'll scrap our old aircraft carriers and build new ones. The Japanese and Americans, on the other hand, will be very innovative in, in building aircraft carriers, designing carrier tactics, uh, coming up with solutions. They'll both adopt exactly the same approach to air power, which is naval, the naval domain will have its own air power and, and the land domain will have its air power. And so both Japan and the United States will go into World War II with two air forces. They're not going to go into the air power in, into World War II with one air force. Both Japan and the United States will go into into World War II with two air forces, two very effective air forces, by the way, for both the United States and Japan. So that's fascinating, that limitation. And the other thing is, it says that it, now that they, you know, they can't focus entirely on battleships, although they will modernize the battleships they have and try to create innovative new tactics for the battleships they have, the Americans and the Japanese will focus on on destroyer design. They'll put, and they'll have all these destroyers. They'll and so they won't completely gaff off a very important weapon system that'll prove absolutely critical in World War II, which is which is destroyers. And again, some of the design things that they do with these things, they think submarine warfare has been outlawed, but they'll build lots of destroyers. They'll build very innovative destroyers, and come and the Japanese in particular will come with very innovative tactics. Of the Americans, will build long-range submarines. They are seeing the next war as a war with Japan and the Pacific. So the Americans will build some very, very innovative submarines and enter the war with probably the best submarines in the world. Now, those submarines will have the worst torpedoes in the world, right? But once you get them the right torpedo, they're, they're going to become extremely de deadly weapon systems. Uh, the treaties don't get around the limiting submarines and destroyers and cruisers until the London Treaty. So all this innovation that takes place in the 1920s because cruisers, submarines, and destroyers. So, you know, you go with what you can go with, right? Battleships are limited. So we're going we're gonna to innovate with aircraft carriers, submarines, airplanes. There's no limits on the number of airplanes that you can build, okay, at the Washington Naval Treaty. Uh, the only treaty out there that's limiting airplanes is the Treaty of Versailles, which says the Germans can't have any. Other than that, anybody can build anything when it comes to air power, you know, and there's no limitations on how to employ them, even though at every arms conference they try to outlaw strategic bombing. Uh, submarine warfare, though, is regarded as sort of a moot point, that submarines are going to be designed to do other things. You know, and the, and the nation will probably do the best job of submarine design in the interwar period. You know, this is going to surprise you. You're going to go, oh, it's Germany, right? No, it's the Netherlands that's going to do it. Now, the Germans are going to steal a lot of the Dutch idea. Well, you know, the Dutch are the ones that come up with the wolf pack, and their idea is to use wolf packs against Japanese convoys that are going to invade Indonesia. So they're going to use Dutch wolf packs. Now, who designs their submarines? The Germans, you know. But in designing these submarines for the Dutch, and of course keeping the blueprints for themselves, 
the Germans find out about the Dutch plan to, to use group tactics. And so they go, ah, that's our solution for commerce rating will be to design submarines and have them work in mass. The solution to the convoy problem is going to be convoys of submarines. So now when a convoy shows up, uh, you're not going to have one submarine sink one merchant ship and the other 39 merchant ships making into port. You're going to have 12 submarines on the surface at night sinking as many ships as they can chase until so they run out of torpedoes. And so there's a lot of innovative things that result from paucity and the naval trees sort of have this perverse effect of making people fight more effectively and think more innovatively. All right. So anytime we try to put a box around war, you know, Crossword says this on page one of On War, you know, anytime we try to put a box around it, it almost makes it worse. So the holiday on capital shipbuilding, that was definitely an important thing that shifted the focus so people weren't just focused on the battleship and creating more of those. But there was also a second piece of that arms reduction treaties. The U.S. agreed not to fortify overseas bases in the Pacific near Japan. How did that impact also some of the innovation going on? Because then we got you know longer range out of the battleships. Uh, they were retrofitted, floating dry docks and all that. What, what was going on with the fortification clause? Well, yeah, uh, and again, you know, initially... You know, the Washington Naval Treaty at the time it was passed, and especially the non-fortification clause, which I think is Article 19 of the, the Treaty of the Naval Treaty. You know, there's many, many treaties that come out of the Washington Conference. Everybody calls it the Washington Naval Conference because of the Washington Naval Treaty, but it wasn't a naval conference. It was a arms limitation conference for everything. So there's all these treaties that come out of it. But the fortification clause, the idea for that actually comes from the British. But when they propose it, the Japanese pick up on it, and uh, the head of the Japanese team, uh, Admiral Kato Tomosaburo, who later becomes Prime Minister of Japan, and who is uh, regarded in Japan today as a very visionary uh, leader, who it's a shame that he, you know, he kind of dies of exhaustion and heart attack, and he may have even had cancer, I think, uh, and that he didn't survive, but he has immense prestige. He's He's Togo's chief of staff at the Battle of Tsushima Strait. So he's a, a man of immense prestige, and he wants to accept uh, the American, the, the 553 battleship holiday, the 553 ratio, uh, which is going to lead to the scrapping of almost a million tons of American capital ships and a lesser amount for the Japanese and the British. He wants to accept that. He says, hey, the Americans can outbuild us if they want to. But here they're offering to kind of freeze everything and scrap all these ships. So we really need to agree to the 553 ratio. Well, inside the Japanese Navy, there's something called the fleet faction, and they're absolutely opposed to accepting an inferior position to the United States. They're willing to accept it if it's a, and now we have to multiply by two, if it's a 10 to 7 ratio. Instead of a 10 to 6 ratio, which is 5-3 times 2, it's a 10 to 7 ratio. And that's based on this idea of, which I've been searching for years to find it actually in Mahan's writings, but supposedly Mahan says, and he does say qualitatively, but not quantitatively, but it becomes this rule that a Navy loses about 10% of its combat power for every thousand miles. It steams away from its ports without upkeep, right? And so if the United States Navy and the Japanese Navy, the United States is 10 and the Japanese Navy is 7, by the time the United States Navy gets to the Western Pacific, its combat power will essentially be equivalent to that of the Japanese, and the Japanese think they can win if that's the case. Now, political considerations are completely not involved in this equation, you know, 
it's the, these are two navies that are saying, hey, you're my most capable opponent in the Pacific, and and I'm your most capable. And so they're sort of designing against each other without reference to kind of politics, which is a mistake, both by the Americans and the Japanese. But the Fortification Clause, uh, Kato Tomosaburo also wants to stop this ruinous naval arms race that's still going on after World War I. So when he finds out that the British have kind of said, hey, well, maybe if we don't agree to fortify anything we have and we basically go with a status quo on what we have in a particular geographic area in the Western Pacific, maybe we should do that. And he proposes that to the Americans, and the Americans go, we like that. The civilians do. And their tactical advisor, Captain William B.C. Pratt, one of several since uh, protégés, uh, liked the idea. And he's one of the technical advisors to the team at Washington that's supporting Secretary of State Hughes. So when uh, they find out that the Japanese are willing to accept this non-fortification clause, they go ahead and agree to it. And it also convinces the Japanese Navy Ministry and General Staff that this is a good treaty. And so what this means is the Americans won't be able to get their fleet up to speed when it gets to the Western Pacific. And so the Japanese will still have local naval superiority in terms of being able to reconstitute the combat power of their fleet much, much quicker than the United States, which would be very far uh, distant from its bases on the west coast of the United States. You remember, Pearl Harbor is not really much of a factor yet. It has not been built up as a big fleet base. It's still, still a very uh, minor base in terms of being able to reconstitute the Pacific fleet. You can put the Pacific fleet there, but, you, but if you base it there, you're going to have to do all these infrastructure improvements. And those aren't going to occur for most of the interwar period. Uh, Pearl Harbor is not going to be massively improved. It won't be until the end of the 1930s that they really get the dry docks and everything going. And they'll even move a floating dry dock from New Orleans all the way up to Pearl Harbor. And there's a famous picture of a destroyer blowing up in that dry dock on the day of Pearl Harbor. So, uh, so the Japanese uh, and American officers at the time regard this as a disaster. But almost immediately they go, well, we're going to have to fight at long range. We're going to have to bring our logistics with it. We're going to have to have a fleet train. So they create this thing called the fleet train. And the fleet train will have all these ships, ammunition ships, and they'll have floating dry docks, and they'll have oilers. So they create the idea that we're going to be able to support this Blue Water Navy with a floating base or with an interim base or with an advanced base. And the whole idea behind the advanced base is, well, we'll just seize some island kind of park all these floating dry docks and logistics ships at that island, and that will be our new base in the Pacific to reconstitute the fleet. And that will actually happen in the Pacific War. Uh, we'll go to Ulithi and create the largest anchorage and fleet replenishment base in the world at Ulithi, and we actually will, like, somebody might break a thumbnail when we seize Ulithi Atoll, Atoll in 1944. And earlier, we'll create an advanced base uh, off of the spirit to Santu uh, in, in, in the uh, Santa Cruz Islands. So, so the advanced base planning begins almost from day one. In fact, the 1923 version of War Plan Orange includes a secret appendix that I included in parts of in my book, uh, Agents of Innovation, for this uh, mobile base project. We're going to have a mobile base. So the Marines are working on it at advanced base operations to seize advanced bases and defend advanced bases. Mostly to defend them. The idea here is to seize bases that actually aren't defended. The Japanese can't fortify everything. And contrary to the myth, Japanese don't. The Japanese don't really start fortifying a lot of these islands until very, very late in the game. And in some cases, not until the war actually starts. 
like the Gilbert Islands, those, those belong to the British. The Japanese will fortify them after they seize them. Yeah, they'll have some big bases at places like Truk. But, you know, Rabaul, they, that base is created after they seize it in 1942. So, you know, some of the assumptions that are made here, but it forces the Navy to build a long-range Navy. We need long-range submarines. We need long-range battleships. We need long-range cruisers, and this is going to mean the United States Navy is going to go to subsequent arms conference going, we want long-range, we want long-range, we want the biggest possible cruiser that we can have. Washington Treaty will eliminate that to 10,000, and there'll be a big snafu, and there'll be an arms conference in Geneva in 1927, a naval arms conference. You're going, Geneva? The United States is at Geneva with the League of Nations at a naval arms conference? I thought we didn't join the League of Nations. We don't, but we do. We stay involved in that collective security, sending our guys there to sit at these conferences. In Geneva, they'll actually have a naval arms conference that's not really the League of Nations, but it really is. And we'll break with the British over the British uh, saying, well, you can't have, you can't build this many 10,000 ton cruisers. So, uh, so the, the, the conference falls apart. And the Japanese are happy because they don't want any limits on cruisers either. They want to build long-range cruisers. So, you know, this fortification clause leads to the building of logistics capability for long-range blue water naval operations, as well as a long-range blue water fleet built around the largest possible, longest-range possible ships in every class. So I want to get your opinion here on something. You know, I see today as something, a situation that's a little bit opposite of the interwar Navy. So back then, you did a good job of explaining that, you know, the the Navy was forced to experiment due to the curtailment of overseas bases and battleships. And today, you know, of course, there were some definitely some big changes in combined arms in the insurgencies that have been going on for the last 20 years or so. But, you know, you might say information is the key paradigm. And there's been no real constraints on the use of GPS or other comms that have been shown to be pretty vulnerable. And so, in other words, you know, there's no constraint that forced this introspection and new solutions that we did see out of the interwar Navy. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I've, I've been a fan for a while. I've had a lot of people tell me it's this crazy, stupid idea. Why would we ever do it? But I've been a fan for a long time of having another Washington conference and inviting China and Russia, our NATO allies, uh, back to Washington, back to Constitution Hall to have another conference. And uh, people have told me it, it's a crazy idea, and, you know, it's not a good idea. But I think that would be a very important thing that we could do. In the realm of information warfare, you know, if people turn us down, they turn us down, you know. And it's now it's on them, right? And we've gained this huge advantage. And, hey, we're willing to talk about limiting this arms race. Because I think we're at, at the same point we were both prior to World War I and after World War I. We've got an arms race going on in the world right now that's taking away resources from solving all these other pressing problems that are out there. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of cutting the defense budget. I, uh, you know, I would have a carrier. I'd have a freeze on carrier construction. I'd say, hey, we'll freeze our carriers if you freeze yours, not build any more new carriers, which means we'd probably think more honestly, just like we did in the interwar period, about how to battle in the anti-access environment, what to do with these new technologies that involve information, that involve unmanned systems, that involve cyber, that involve all these things. Well, I think, uh, I think, I think we could benefit greatly from a conference. It's a win-win from what I see, at least for the American experience. Now, again, the patterns of the past may not repeat themselves in the same way, right? 
Uh, I'm not a big fan of just kind of continuing to produce these bloated defense budgets because I don't think people think very well when they get money thrown at them. I really don't. I think they think a lot better when they're sitting next to the fire and they don't have enough money to buy the coal so that they can write their book or wherever. I think they produce a better book. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for uh, maybe trying to limit this stuff and, and, and have another arms conference, have a limitation conference. So an arms limitation. You know, my proposal is, hey, 2021, 100th anniversary of one of the most successful arms limitation conferences in history. Now, for years and years, the historians have portrayed the Washington Conference as an abysmal failure. That's not what it was. It saved billions of dollars. You know, now the fact that the politicians and the generals and the admirals, you know, screwed it up, that's not the Washington Conference's fault, you know. And actually, the arms, the naval arms regime prevented war with Japan in 1921. And it probably prevented war for a lot longer than a lot of people probably think it did. All right. And you can't prove these things because they're counterfactual. They're negatives. You can't prove a negative and everything. And so I understand the rules of logic in that respect. But, you know, this myth that these naval conferences and these arms, you know, London was a London failed to measure up. But at the time, it was perceived as a huge success. And then the London Naval Conference in 1936, I don't care what anybody says, that was a success because it brought the British and the Americans much, much closer together in terms of their thinking and actually led to a better sort of detente between, you know, because the United States and Great Britain weren't allies at the time. You know, they were, they were sort of these edgy nations that were looking at each other. And, uh, yeah, they had a lot of interests in common, but uh, they certainly weren't allies at the time of, of either the first London Naval country or the second. So I'm a big fan of, of kind of bringing everybody under the big tent and doing it. And I've had people tell me, well, that would recognize, you know, the equivalent. So, well, we did it in 1921. Yeah, but we, were, we weren't a major power. Bullshit. We were a major power. After, we were the major power after World War I, and Britain knew it. Why would she agree to these treaties if she didn't know it? The United States is the only nation to really come out of World War I in an extremely advantageous economic, military, and financial position. And then we disarmed, you know. The United States, uh, the nation that won World War I more than anybody else is the United States. And it wasn't out of the goodness of the hearts that we won it either, by the way. And when you look at World War II, you look at who comes out of World War II. I mean, look at the cities in the Soviet Union and Germany and Britain and France and everywhere else in the world. And whose cities are gleaming and untouched? The United States. So I think it's BS when people say, well, we can't. You know, well, BS. Let's have the 100th anniversary of the Washington Naval Treaty, which, which I think of as a success, as a milestone in progressive human history uh, of the progress that can be achieved when humans work together under the right circumstances with the proper morals and virtues. And, and let's have another one. And let's, bring all, put, let's put it all on the table. You know, but, you know, what does that threaten? It threatens the military, industrial, congressional complex. It's who it threatens. It threatens their way of doing business. All right. But I think the business of America needs to be more than just creating arms and selling them to ourselves and our friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you that when you constrain resources, you have to think differently. You know, one of the worst things you could do for a project and a program is to kind of throw too much money at it too quickly, and you never really learn parsimony and, and how to do things in a different way. And there's no deadlines. There's no urgency, right? There really is no deadline. Well, we have to have this by this time, 
or we're not going to win in Afghanistan. You know, the only program like that that I can think of in the last 20 years where we it was like, we've got to have this and we've got to have it now is the MRAP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so just sticking with the arms treaty, do you think that, well, 100 years ago, Japan might have been very willing to kind of go along with that? Because as you said, they look at America and they say, well, they can just straight up outproduce us. But China now is kind of on the rise. Everyone kind of looks at them and says, well, they can just, you know, drop boats into the water like dumplings, you know, into a soup bowl much quicker, much cheaper. They're on the rise. What kind of incentive would they have necessarily for coming along with this kind of treaty? Prestige. (laughs) I am not completely convinced that the Chinese can produce capability just by producing I mean, when's the last time they fought a major land war with anybody? <laughs> uh, Vietnam, Korea. That no, that was that was a that was what fifty thousand People's Liberation Army going to Vietnam and get their asses kicked by the Vietnamese army. And so I said, no, no. The uh, the last time they fought a major land war with anybody was the United States and Korea. All right, and both sides learned a lot from that, uh, and both sides forgot a lot from that. And when was the last time they fought a major maritime war with anybody? Well, now you got to go all the way back to the Sino, you know, unless you want to include this, this naval war they fought in the 1980s with Vietnam. But that wasn't a major war. That was just China beating up on Vietnam because they could, taking the paracels away from them without anybody lifting a finger. You know, at the time, the United States and China had a friendly relationship, you know, and so, and, and Vietnam was still very communist. And Vietnam learned a lesson there. It might be nice to be friends with the United States. But, uh, they haven't had a major war with anybody, a uh, naval war with anybody in the 20th century, never mind the 21st century. The last major naval war they had with anybody was, was with the Japanese, the Sino-Japanese War in 1895, and they lost that. And so, you know, the last time the Chinese kind of threw their weight around with naval power was, you know, the Yuan Dynasty with the Khan, you know, uh, or the Ming Dynasty. And even the Ming Dynasty didn't really go head-to-head with anybody remotely equivalent to them in terms of capability, even though they had an immense amount of capability, uh, which they eschewed, kind of like the Americans did, all right? So uh, blue water capability vis-a-vis the Chinese, like I tell people when they go, oh, look at that Chinese aircraft carrier. I go, okay, when the Chinese aircraft carrier is out there recovering 30 aircraft in under 30 minutes from a Marshall stack, zip-lip, and zip-lip means without communications, they didn't get a hold of me about Chinese capability. Yeah, the Chinese have the capability where they need it, which is nobody's going to, you know, drive into the Chinese littoral, uh, you know, 100 kilometers of Chinese coastland and, you know, and blackmail them with, you know, with tomahawks. That's not, or air power for that matter. Yeah, they can defend that. But I mean, who wants to do that anyway? That's kind of a stupid idea if I've ever heard one. You know, and, and and we've known about that truism since the Princess Bride. So, so you know, this idea that we're going to fight the Chinese, you know, um, you know, th- there's things that we can do. But, I mean, so, so I think the Chinese have everything to gain and nothing to lose by coming to an arms conference. And if they, if they would refuse to come to one because they believe their own propaganda, that they've been drinking their own Kool-Aid, you know, or their own green tea, that's fine with me. You know, we've got a huge informational leverage on them, which is, hey, we wanted to talk. We wanted to kind of do do things to make the world better. Now, we shoot ourselves in the foot, the United States, all the time. You know, we need to sign on close three. We need to get on with it. You know, 
the sovereignty that we're trading away by signing on close three, it's not sovereignty we can enforce anyway. So it's, it's stupid. It's a, it's a completely nonsense. We're not signing away our 12-mile limit or our economic uh, zones. We're not doing that, you know. Um, the Chinese signed it and they ignore it. The Russians signed it and they ignore it, you know. But they've got in international law and before the international admiralty courts, they've got a better position than we do because we haven't signed the damn thing. You know, our guys go in there, <laughs> well, we observe it. They're like, well, yeah, but she didn't sign it, you know. So the Americans, you know, they can shoot themselves in the foot from an informational viewpoint, too. Of course, most people don't understand these things. They don't understand international maritime law. They don't understand any of this stuff. So it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't care. It's like, so who cares? You know, what does that mean to me? You know, can I go to Walmart today and buy an iPad? You know, so that's kind of where Americans are coming from on this. So, you know, we need to educate our citizenship. But, you know, if you're going to let the elite and the, and the political class run the country, then let them do some smart things for once and not some stupid stuff. So, you know, I'm not saying flash the defense budget down to 1% of GDP, but, you know, uh, these bloated defense budgets are a mistake. And I think the Chinese threat globally, massively overstated. So how many nuclear powers do we have with contiguous borders with the United States? Zero. How many do the Chinese have? with contiguous borders with nuclear-armed states. North Korea, Russia, India, Pakistan. Yeah, they got a much bigger problem than we do, all right? I mean, who's got a land border with Afghanistan and who doesn't? China, not the United States. Yeah, no, China's got huge problems, you know. All it's going to take Chinese is a major conflagration to their south with India, you know, which is becoming more and more nationalist every day. And guess what's going to happen to the People's Liberation Navy? It's going to be starved for bucks, just like the Red Banner fleet was. When push came to shove, the Red Banner fleet got defunded, and that, that money went to the Strategic Rocket Forces and to the Red Army and to the KGB and to those guys, all right? The Chinese growth is settling out. And, I, you know, I don't have a problem with China being economically strong. I think that's a good thing. I think a collapse of China is a much bigger threat than a war with China. So I'm, I'm not a panda hugger. I don't think we should give them everything they want. I don't think we should neutralize Guam. I mean, there's this guy up at the Naval War College, Lyle Goldstein. He said we should do like we did, you know, with Guam, you know, uh, in 1919 and 1939, which is, you know, not arm it to the teeth with, with air power and naval power, you know. Well, in 1919 and 1939, we didn't have any naval power or air power in Guam, you know. So arming it would have, was considered provocative to the Japanese. But today, we've had naval and air power in Guam ever since World War II, since we recaptured it, and the Guamians became American citizens, all right? So willingly, by the way, they voted for it. It's not like anybody forced them to, especially when you're giving them millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer largesse every year. So, you know, I don't say go over and give the Chinese everything they want, you know? Yeah, what they're doing to the South China Sea it's not just, it's, it's an ecological disaster. We can make all kinds of money on that front saying, hey, look at how they're destroying the ecology of the South China Sea, you know. Um, but, you know, they go, well, you guys haven't signed UNCLOS. And then sort of ends the argument, you know, with us. And the other thing is, you know, we appeased them. The, the rebound to the Pacific was an appeasement policy. It wasn't a, hey, we're going to get serious about China. Yeah, they got serious about appeasing China. And so, so you know, when you quit doing certain things like, Let's say, for example, you are on a neighborhood watch in your neighborhood, and you guys have been driving for years and years around in your car, taking turns, kind of patrolling the neighborhood on your neighborhood watch, right? Well, a new new neighborhood organization comes into effect, and they go, you know, there's this one guy, 
and he doesn't like it that we drive around, you know, the lights come up, you know, and they bother him and he can't sleep. And, and so why don't we quit driving our cars through the neighborhood for a couple of years? Well, that creates a new precedent, doesn't it? And that's what happened with the U.S. Navy in the South China Sea. We started tiptoeing around the South China Sea. We didn't ever tiptoe around the South China Sea prior to 2005. You know, when we had to send ships through there, we sent them through there, and they went to that stupid-ass location in the Persian Gulf, you know. And when they came home, they came home through there, or they came home through Australia. But then we all of a sudden, we start going, well, we're not going to do any FOS, and we're not going to drive ships through the South China Sea, even though it's the quickest way to get 7th Fleet and 3rd Fleet units to the Persian Gulf. So Chinese are like, well, see, you guys, uh, this is the new order of things, is you don't do freedom of navigation. Now we're being stupid, and we're doing freedom of navigation in the Taiwan Strait that we never did. That's dumb. That's idiotic. That risks American lives on ships to do that. You know, I don't blame the Chinese for threatening to say, hey, well, we're going to pop one of these bad boys, you know, just to show that we can't. You know, that will start a war, sure enough. Put an aircraft carrier in the China Sea, the height of stupidity, all right? So, yeah, there's things that we do that are so idiotic. You know, we go back and forth between being bellicose and babies. So it, it's just fascinating to kind of watch it all. Anyway, you got me on my podium here. I don't think the Chinese are that big of a threat. We need to take them seriously. You know, they're much more of a threat to India, Japan, Vietnam, Russia. Well, you know, I'm a contrarian. You know, people are, they, they freak out, you know, because I'm a carrier aviator with, you know, almost 200 arrested landings and almost 3,000 hours in Navy aircraft. You know, and I, I, we don't need so many carriers. We don't need them. They're not needed, you know. Um, does that mean I think they're obsolete? No, I think carriers have an immense amount of utility. Well, you just don't need so many of them. And they make people lazy, you know. Eh, well, we're going to use aircraft carrier air because now we don't have to agree to, to, to basing rights or, or we're not restricted in operating from the land bases we already have in Oman and Qatar and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and all these other places and Bagram, you know. It's much, much easier to, you know, tank an Navy aircraft from an aircraft carrier than it is to base a couple F-6 in theater on a land base, you know, so, so I'm, you know, so people always like, who, who are you, you know, you know, to talk about aircraft carriers, and, and my answer to them is, I'm John Kuhn, I, I, I did, you know, six cruises on four different aircraft carriers, what about you, you know, so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to carrier ops, and their utility, and the limits of their utility. Yeah, one of the things is, it, it seems that we always focus on, you know, how many ship poles are they putting out there and all that kind of stuff. And we're just like kind of fixated on some of these numbers. But then the carrier operations, this is combined arms thing. It's more than, you know, just the hull, right? It's the systems of systems. And okay, so China now has, I think they've deployed or they got initial operational capability on their first home built carrier. But there's all that intangible knowledge that kind of goes along with how do you, as you said, you know, get 30 aircraft off in 30 minutes and all of that. And there's just a lot of things that you can't just cyber hack or, or just get out of a specification. You don't improvise navies. You don't improvise, improvise naval capability. You don't improvise uh, a blue water fleet. It's, it's not something that you can, you know, just build a lot of ships and now you think you've got a fleet in being. That fleet's got to get out there. And again, the Chinese have almost zero operational experience against anything blue water. Um, uh, yeah, they've got some real uh, serious capabilities uh, in, in anti-access. And, you know, the area denial piece 
that can be defeated, and the Navy actually already has a pretty good doctrine to defeat that. You know, it's all this stuff that we did against the Soviets in the Cold War. So that doctrine was shaken out, and you know, and I know about that doctrine. I was one of the guys who wrote it, you know, back in the Cold War. I was a electronic warfare guy, so I know about counter-targeting for aircraft carriers and fleets in the blue water about as well as anybody else out there. I just need to have some of my technological concepts and programs. But a lot of the programs that we talked about coming online, they're online now. So you don't improvise a fleet. The Chinese are not going to improvise this capability, neither the Russians. You know, the, the most capable part of the Russian fleet is its submarine fleet. So so what does that mean for the U.S. Navy? Well, that means we gotta we got to know how to do anti-submarine warfare uh, against Russian submarines, you know, in particular areas. Now, there's some areas that, you know, we're not going to really be able to do much about Russian submarines. Fortunately, most of those areas are in Russia's backyard. So that's where you focus your efforts is real capability, you know. And the, the Chinese capability is really focused on the way we need to think about it is anti-access capability for an invasion of Taiwan or anti-access capability that the Chinese might employ should they decide to get serious about seizing a bit more real estate in the South China Sea or even in parts south in the first or second island chains. And the way to combat that stuff is not with big units. The way to combat that stuff is with counter anti-access measures. Sam Tangretti's written about this. And to do that, you don't need big giant aircraft carriers. The point about the aircraft carrier as a system is is well made. And Barney Rubble wrote a really great piece, uh, Robert K. Rubble, Cap, retired Captain Rubble, in the Naval War College Review recently about, you know, you need to talk about the air wing, you know, more than the aircraft carrier. But even Barney thinks we, we, we need to reduce the number of aircraft carriers, and we need to and I mean, we need to go to a hybrid air wing now of mixed uh, unmanned and manned and, and manned uh, aircraft. And we need to decide how far do we want these guys to go, you know, and what is it they're going to do? You know, where, where if, they, if we do get to a big fight, you know, uh, where it's mo- and it'll be mostly an evil war. That's what I think the Army guys don't understand is any future war with the Chinese that might occur is probably going to be a limited war. If it's not a limited war, then, you know, go read the article that's uh, that's out there about uh, remembering World War III. That, uh, there's almost this religious level of rigidity inside the Navy leadership about reducing aircraft carriers. It's like, well, if we reduce them, we're going to lose them, you know? And so we can't afford to lose a single aircraft carrier, no matter how obscenely expensive it is to keep the older ones in operation uh, as well as how obscenely uh, expensive it is to, to get new ones because of, you know, defense welfare that we're doing here. You know, I think you can keep these shipyards open, but you might force them to uh, adopt more modern business practices if you if you didn't just throw money after money after money at these guys. You know, people were buying homes in, in the Hamptons and they're buying homes in Florida and everything with all this money, and they don't need that. I mean... You know, and it's 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 largesse, it's profit. So I I'm I'm not completely convinced that there's not a lot of you know just good old fashioned you know slop going on here with good old fashioned local politics and everything. So the, the carrier is a weapon system has utility, but at the high end of warfare, that utility is extremely limited. And you have to be honest about that. Where if we fight a limited naval war with China, it's going to depend on other platforms. Uh, more than it's going to depend on the carrier airway. It really is. I mean, submarines, mines, anti-ship cruise missiles, smaller vessels, air power. Air power is going to do a lot more force in a 
in a limited littoral war with the Chinese, littoral maritime war with the Chinese, than in, in air power in general, you know, uh, long-range aircraft that the Chinese can't sink. You know, they can't sink Whiteman Air Force Base. And I, and I think that's part of the Navy's fear. Is, oh, my gosh, we're the, the, the Air Force is going to get our budget share. You know, the Army's going to get our budget share. That kind of thing needs to go away. It needs to go away. And we need to think about what capabilities we need to do what. Are we really going to defend Taiwan? You know, we need to, nobody's really made that decision. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger made the decision, no, years and years ago. Uh, but there's this Taiwan, you know, Relations Act, which, you know, still has some things in it that imply that we might get involved against the Chinese uh, over Taiwan. The, the policy there is unclear. Now, I understand deep policy, if your enemy kind of guessing, but, uh, but I'm not convinced that the aircraft carrier has the kind of utility that we think it should have in large-scale naval operations with a pure competitor in an environment in the littoral. Now, in the blue water, different story. But I don't see anybody with blue, blue water capability for power projection uh, out there right now. The Russian air carriers on fire and the Chinese aircraft carriers is a showpiece. I'd say let the Chinese build as many aircraft carriers as they want. Let them make that mistake. It's not going to take much to sink that thing. You know, a couple ADCAP torpedoes from a Virginia-class submarine, and that thing is bye-bye. So I'd like you to kind of move on to something that, um, you know, perhaps – instead of aircraft carriers, there's, there's a different way of thinking about this. Can you talk about what you've written as network as a capital ship? What do you think about that? Does that, do you think shifting focus to something like that? What is it first? And then, and then what do you think about shifting some focus over to there? Well, the basis for that is the thinking that's going on by guys like Rubble, me, Tangretti, that the Falklands were a preview of what war the future is the Falklands War. It's going to be a missile war. Uh, it's going to be a torpedo war. It's going to be a fire-and-forget weapons sort of a war, all right? That means targeting. That means you need to have a network to, to fill in all of the spaces for what today is being called the kill chain. You know, back in the old days, we were basically talking about, you know, what it's going to take to find the target, get a targeting solution on the target, get that targeting solution to something that can actually deliver a lethal capability against it, whether it's a torpedo or a missile or even a shell from a gun, or limpid mines, you know, from frogmen, I don't care. You know, every, you know, you, you want to you you go after that thing, whatever, whatever that thing is, right? And so in order to do that, you have to have a really good ISR net, intelligence uh, surveillance reconnaissance uh, strike complex. Uh, you know, one of the guys who's written some really good stuff on this is completely ignored by everybody, uh, particularly in the Army, but not ignored by people in Israel and people in Russia and Navy people in China, as Doug McGregor has talk, talked about the reconnaissance strike complex. And so the network is kind of that thing, you know, how are we going to link all of this stuff together? Uh, but it's all based on numbers of weapons, all right? And that means missiles, torpedoes, guns, you know, whatever. To, to get that kinetic effect, all right? Naval warfare is far more kinetic than land war. It really is. People live on land, they don't live at sea. So the kinetic piece, which can get overemphasized in land warfare, and I think often is by Americans, is actually more relevant in the, in the maritime sphere. The kinetic piece is really immense. So you've gotta get the information, uh, particularly the, the information that can give you the shot. 
to the shooter. Okay, so you've got to link the sensor to the shooter, and then the shooter's got to link the, the weapon to the target. Now, what we've got new here in this day and age, again, it's a function of communications technology and data links and spread spectrum and all the different things that are going on technologically, cybernetically these days, is, is the idea that, you know, that we're going to have multi-mission weapons. So now you launch the Tomahawk, but the Tomahawk is going to get in-flight updates on its target set. It's going to have AI some kinds of AI algorithms in it that are going to tell it what to do and what not to do. It's going to have some capability. And this starts to bring in the, the whole issue of ethics into the whole thing of, you know, how much AI do you want these guys to have? You know, what kind of ROE are you going to build into your software so that the Tomahawk doesn't decide, you know, well, I'm going to go blow up this village full of women and children instead of, you know, blow up, you know, this other place, which, you know, I've been with initially why I would launch, you know, so, you don't want weapons to have too much of a mind of your own, but you do want them to be multi-mission. You want them, and you want to be able to change your mind about what they're going to go after. You know, maybe you launch some missile, and you want it to destroy a land target, but all of a sudden you've got a much better, much better target at sea that you want to destroy, or vice versa, right? So because the sensor system is giving you, you know, time-sensitive targeting information, you know, and what seemed like a good target ten seconds ago is now actually not nearly as good as that target you've now gotten from your reconnaissance strike complex but by an extremely redundant, coherent, and resilient network five seconds ago, okay? So, for example, say you're in a blue water environment and the Chinese are, uh, let's just say you've already got a war. It started for some reason, the Senkakus or something, and the, and the Chinese, you know, you know launched a, launched attacks on Japanese territory, and so now we're supporting the Japanese. So, you know, we've got our ISR complex, and, you know, we've located these Chinese ships that are getting ready to launch standoff weapons against Guam, right? So the ship we locate is a, Duda, a Luda DD, right, or a Luda DDG, and, and, hey, you know, this thing is equipped with some new form of C-801 or C-802 or C-80X, you know, land attack missile, you know, and so that's the target. Suddenly, an air search radar and a GCA-controlled approach radar come up from a target 10 miles away, you know, but you've already launched your missiles to destroy the Luna, right? Well, they're still on their way, but they're not there yet, and you can reprogram those bad boys in flight, or you can reprogram that torpedo after you've launched it, you know, and again, I don't know whether that's a capability or not, but if you, can, if you could imagine it, you could probably come up with it, right? That's the, sort of the science. Science fiction rule number one. If you can imagine it, you can probably come up with it. So, so, so the idea here is, well, now we've got this, this, this other target is actually, you know, the Shandong. Uh, and she's a lot bigger, better target than the Luda is. So now you reprogram that missile to, to go after the Shandong, right? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's why the network is so important. And, and again, the fight here is going to be a missile fight. It's going to be a counter-targeting fight. You know, a lot of the really heavy-duty stuff is going to be done in the early in the early parts of the kill chain to prevent the enemy actually, you know, coming up with a targeting solution that it can link up with its shooter. You know, you know, part of the problem here is well, they've got a. You might be able to find out that they've got a targeting solution on you. You introduce all that, you know, so none of the stuff that Klaus was possible is going to go away, friction, uncertainty, chance, all that stuff, you know, danger, psychology, passion, 
you know, along with, you know, sort of good old fashioned rational thought that's so supposed to behind the, be behind the design of all this stuff. So, so that's what I'm talking about and what Barney's talking about and what Sam Freddy and, and other guys are talking about when they're talking about the network. Yeah. So you said something interesting there that if you can imagine it, you could probably get it done. But you've also said... Yeah, with today's technology, I think so. When you're talking weapons engineering, I mean, how, how are you going to reprogram a torpedo after you've launched it? Well, it's wire guided, right? Okay. Or maybe you're going to build uh, acoustic sensors on it where you can use just simple binary pings to say, you know, two pings means, you know, you're going to reset on a different axis and search that way for the new target versus uh, the target you've already been designed. So, I mean... Again, as, as, as someone who's got some residual training in, in electronic warfare systems design and engineering, because I've got a systems engineering degree from the Navy, I, you know, I've already kind of offered you one solution just for a torpedo. And I suspect it, that capability, uh, anyway, I say anything more than that. Anyway, <laughs> go back. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, 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 that's good. But you've also talked about something called Arthur C. Clarke syndrome trying to leapfrog technologies rather than, you know, when we look back at the interwar Navy, it didn't seem like there was any, like, discontinuous jump or anything like that. It seemed much more evolutionary in nature than revolutionary. So, you know, where's that boundary, do you think, between, you know, how are we going to evolve these things and where, like, what is Arthur C. Clarke syndrome? Is there really kind of, like, this bright line of where that it comes? And that's his famous story, you know, where you've got the two galactic empires. And the one galactic empire basically using proven technology that they know how to employ, even though it's inferior to the other galactic empire, which is always looking for a sort of silver bullet, right? So that's a famous uh, short story, and it's made the rounds. I've tweeted it out and sent it out the email to as many people as I can. I read that damn thing back in the 70s, you know, when I was a greasy little teenager, you know, who, who loved sci-fi, you know, as a sci-fi guy, you know, reading Clark and Asimov and, and Ursula Quay, Kayla Gwynn and, and all those guys, Harlan Ellison. So the point is is that, uh, that you've made, and I agree with it, I think it's almost the law of innovation, is that he who innovates least innovates best. But you still have to innovate. You still have to make progress. You have to try new things. But when you try to do leapfrogs with technology, uh, the Norton bomb site is a great example. We're going to leapfrog. Right now, here's how we drop bombs. You know, it, we're using the Mark I Mod Zero eyeball. Or we're going to put something on the dashboard of the bomber, and we're going to look through that thing. Well, let's leapfrog over that and get something that'll put a bomb into a pickle barrel for us. You know, and I think it wasn't that the Norton bomb site wasn't a wonderful piece of equipment. The problem is that you thought it could do something it couldn't, all right? Today, the problem with a lot of this technology, and I've, I've actually had some run-ins with some specific technology that was designed specifically to, to kind of leapfrog to, to an immense menu of wonderful capabilities, and they couldn't even make it do what it was designed to replace, okay? And I can't give you the specifics of the technology, but when it, you know, now you go, well, it's got teasing problems, right? So we'll, we'll iron all this out and we'll solve the problem over time. But why not kind of go slowly? You know, why not, you know, don't get rid of all the battleships. You might need a couple of them, you know? I mean, I think the British are really glad they had battleships in World War II. And I think the Japanese were, you know, kind of glad that they had some battleships, to be honest with you, because they wouldn't have had anything if they could have done a Lady Gulf if they didn't have battleships, right? They couldn't, they couldn't have a fleet and being without battleships, right? 
and this is Chris Gable. Chris Gable said this. I wrote this down in my little bit. He who innovates least innovates best. He, he was talking about the Germans. The Germans didn't create a, no, a whole new tactical doctrinal framework of warfare after Versailles. They took their tactical doctrinal framework that they'd been using for a long time and fine-tuning with different uh, command philosophies and different tactics and doctrines, and they improved on what they already had. All right, um, and so they were maneuver warfare guys. They always believed in maneuver warfare, and you know, Blitzkrieg doctrine. There's no such thing as Blitzkrieg doctrine that got created out of whole cloth in the interwar period. The Germans had the Bavagenskrieg maneuver warfare doctrine that from World War One, and they just simply added stuff to it. They added mechanized tools to it. But they didn't get rid of all the other stuff that they had, the combined arms stuff that they had. They added aircraft to it. They had to simulate it and pretend that they had aircraft, but they, they did their exercises and they said, so how many, you know, how many of the enemy's airplanes did we shoot down with our airplanes, even though they weren't allowed to have airplanes? You know, how might we use airplanes to support the ground troops to support a scheme of maneuver for the vagans free, for maneuver warfare, for combined arms warfare? So that's what they did. I think that incremental approach is good. I, you know, it's nice to have some programs out there, but you've got to test the programs. You've got to make sure they work. You know, the big problem with American torpedoes in World War II was a completely inadequate testing program. The idea that they had for the Mark 14 was a good idea. And, and they had the whole interwar period to do it. Perniciousness, hubris, arrogance, uh, lack of oversight, the same old things that come up over and over again. You know, I suspect with the uh, magnetic catapults on the on the aircraft carriers, that's what you're talking about: hubris, lack of oversight, you know, inadequate testing, promises that aren't kept, failure of the American government to go back to the contractors and say, "Well, screw you! You know, you haven't met your deadlines. We're not going to believe that you've got the fix ready for this thing." And then, you know, we're going to we're going to bring a couple guys who own the program and are in your pocket and are probably going to go for, to, to work for you after they retire, we're not going to send those guys in. We're going to send a couple guys that we're going to grab from the fleet, and then they're going to give us a, a report, or we're going to create a special inspector general, and then we're going to go, you know what, steam catapults. You know, you guys keep working on this, but uh, taxpayers aren't going to fund your, your research anymore uh, since you're not delivering it. So, and they're talking about that already. Let's go back to steam catapults. The, you know, nuclear, two nuclear reactors, and steam catapults, you know, that works. We know that works, you know. Can we make that system better? Oh, yeah, we can make that system better. I, I think the incremental approach is usually a better way to go. And, and, and the, the tools that I learned how to use in the Navy when I retired uh, uh, 15 years ago, I think most of those tools, versions of them, that's what you're probably going to see in the next bite. You know, the really new sexy stuff, tends to not have that big of an impact initially on the battlefield. Look at the tank. New, sexy, going to solve our problems. Nope. The opening nights for the tank, failure, booze, curtain down. Well, so much for the tank, right? Now, did they throw it away? No, they kept working on it, trying to put things together. You know, yeah, opening night for the, the improvements and the lessons learned on the tank at Cambrai, failure. You know, initially wild success. But then failure. By the time they got around to iteration number three at Ara, the British with the tank and combined arms uh, maneuver with tanks, infantry, and artillery, huge success. Bad day for the German army. All right. 
I mean, it takes iterative approaches with incremental changes to get to effective military innovation. Yeah, I think that's something that you saw with the general board there back in the interwar Navy that, you know, they really withheld judgment until after experimentation and then continuous experimentation, you know, just because something didn't beat out the legacy system in every way, shape and form doesn't mean that it doesn't hold promise for the future to keep going at it. Right. Yeah. No, one of the most important, you know, innovations that they supported, at least initially, had been rigorously wargamed at the Naval War College. And so they were basing their decisions about building a hybrid cruiser aircraft carrier, which was allowed by a loophole in the London Treaty that Bill Moffat had inserted in the treaty deliberately, you know, to kind of build aircraft carriers on the cheap because Congress wouldn't build any aircraft carriers. Congress isn't funding aircraft carriers. So there's that, that whole thing of testing and development. At some point, though, you've got to build the capability and experiment with it. And Ernest King in 1940 still wants to build this crazy thing, the flight deck cruiser. And he says, you know, all we got to do is build one and play with it. You know, did we really have to introduce magnetic catapults on, on what was supposed to be a frontline carrier? Well, why couldn't we, have, you know, put one of those things on something smaller and tested it on something smaller and spent less money and kind of worked out the problem in a different way? You know, you're going to only do so much war gaming and simulation with any weapon system. And I, I think that was one of the problems. I suspect, you know, I think oversight's another huge problem that exists. But the, yeah, the general board was, you know, they were kind of a show me outfit and they were small. They were very small. They were never very large. The larger an organization gets, it's almost a law. The larger the organization gets, the less innovative it becomes because it gets all of this bureaucratic stuff that, that Weber talks about, you know, that starts sort of impeding effectiveness over time. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm almost of a mind that, you know, bureaucracies need to be cold every couple of years. And, and then they can grow again, and then you can cold them again, and then they can grow again, you know, but people don't like Now, the business world does that all the, all the time, but we don't do it in government. Dr. John Kuhn, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Okay, yeah, it's a pleasure, Eric. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.